This segment was recorded September 29th, 2010. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We are live here on ReachMD, and this week we are 100% natural. Natural. And this week we're doing our best show ever, but it's something different. In addition to coming to you through your car, online, or maybe through your iPhone today, we're also welcoming listeners at the ReachMD virtual booth at the Oncology Care Live Conference. That is right. And those of you in hyperspace, those of you in hyperspace at the virtual conference can live chat your questions and comments to today's guest. That's Dr. Judith Karp, Professor of Oncology at the Sidney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Say that three times fast. Virtual School of Medicine. And she's an authority on the molecular mechanisms of leukemias and lymphomas. She's also chair of the Oncology Care Live Conference, and we'll talk to Dr. Karp later in the show about who's there and what they're talking about. Is she going to know where the bathrooms are? That's no, actually, important. It is important, but it is a virtual conference, Michael. Well, what if my virtual avatar needs to go to the bathroom, Matt? <laughs> you know, there's probably a virtual map for that, and it's just for you. What if you. I need to go to the virtual bathroom? Just for you, Michael. So, wherever you're listening to us, welcome. And it's not too late to register for Oncology Care Live. Sign in now for free at www.oncologycarelive.com. And don't forget to email us at sol at reachmd.com, tweet us, or post to our Facebook page. And, of course, call us at 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. And Matt and I are also going to discuss the latest in the debate over mammography. But before we get to all that, as we do every week, let's get into some of the latest virtual headlines from the virtual world of medicine. All right. Virtually speaking, Michael, we're going to jump off the deep end here. And start with a headline about a special bra, that's right, a special bra that could help save your life. I love this story. Maybe not your life, Michael, but (laughs) unless you're wearing a bro. But for anyone listening who wears them, I'm talking about the emergency bra, which just hit the market. Now get this, it's a brassiere that in an emergency can quickly be converted into a pair of protective face masks. (laughs) It was designed by Dr. Elena Bodner, a Ukrainian scientist who studied the aftermath of the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear plant disaster, and she reasons that if people had access to gas masks immediately after the meltdown, they may have been able to prevent radiation sickness. This is the best story we've ever done. (laughs) I love it. The emergency bra maximizes the fact that a bra happens to have the same goal as an emergency respiratory device. Naturally. Both seek to achieve tight fixation and full coverage and uplift. So the emergency bra has shoulder straps that can be adjusted for the head. Inserts allow the bra to be pressed tightly against the nose and a liner that filters out airborne particles. Oh, I wish we weren't a serious show. We would have fun with this. And since it's a wearable device, a woman can have the emergency bra with her wherever disaster might strike. Are you carrying one, Matt, with you now? Absolutely. And she can also save a friend. Share your bra with a friend since each cup can be used as a mask. Plus, (laughs) it's an attractive red. Perfect for both life-threatening emergencies and for getting your groove on. (laughs) That is perfect marketing. But in all seriousness, the bra did win the Harvard-sponsored Ig Nobel Award. Sounds like Ig Nobel for public health invention in 2009. Now, the Ig Nobel Awards are given by an organization called Improbable Research for advances that, quote, make people laugh and then think, end quote. 
And other 2009 winners included, and get this, a physicist who investigated a possible cause of arthritis in the fingers by cracking the knuckles of only his left hand, not his right, every day for 50 years. Lock this man up. <laughs> also, there was an analysis of why pregnant women don't tip over. That's, uh, that's serious. And the uh, 2010 awards, by the way, are just about to be announced. So I think we'll be keeping a very sharp eye out for those. This is wonderful. I'm going out to buy one tomorrow. And there's more interesting, some interesting looks. more interesting news for, I'm not going to wear it, more interesting news for women. The Food and Drug Administration has approved a new oral contraceptive that's also a vitamin supplement. The drug's called Bayaz. Bay, it sounds like it's from New Orleans, Bayaz. And it's made by Bayer Sharing Pharmaceuticals. And it's basically a new version of the beleaguered birth control pill Yaz. Yaz had some problems, as we all know. The government said Bayer was making misleading claims about Yaz's benefit for acne, my favorite disease, and premenstrual syndrome. And two studies found that women who took Yaz had a 64% increased risk of blood clots. Not a huge number of cases overall, but the response to that research was, of course, a few lawsuits and a lot of consumer fear. A lot of it. Not to mention a $20 million ad campaign to correct the misperception about the benefit for acne and PMS. Maybe they could sell Biaz with a safety, with one of those bras. Absolutely. In a, in a kit. And now the added benefit with this new drug, Biaz. And by the way, that really sounds like beyond Yaz, which Bayaz. is strange marketing by itself. But it's not alleviation of acne or PMS. It's 451 micrograms of added folic acid, the mainstay supplement, as we know, for preventing neural tube defects. So you get birth control as well as an early fetal protectant, which is kind of a strange way to market a drug, if you ask me. You I get mean, a great name for your baby, too, Bayaz. Name Bayaz. your kid Bayaz. And if it's used properly, obviously you shouldn't get pregnant. But, I mean, the way that they're probably promoting this, if you slip on taking it or get pregnant despite its use, well, at least you and your baby are solid on folic acid, right? <laughs> and at 450 micrograms, that's only about half the recommended daily dose for pregnant women, but it's just right for when planning pregnancy. There is a mixed message there, Bayaz. Bayaz. I'm going to change my name to Bayaz. Better than Yaz. Moving on to our last curious headline. This is the best. This, this is, is the best. best. It is the best. It's a weak follow-through on our women's health-related topics before, but it is a very dark, dark day for all men and women who love ice cream. Oh, no. Yes, I'm afraid so. Ice cream maker Ben & Jerry's has removed the phrase all-natural from its ice cream cartons under pressure from an advocacy group called the Center for Science and the Public Interest. We've all heard of them. It was reported that Ben & Jerry's CEO responded that the company believes their ice cream is, in fact, all-natural, as he put it, reasonable consumers would understand the term all-natural. But they didn't want there to be any question as to the integrity of their ice cream or their company, so they removed the phrase. When I want my ice cream, I am not a reasonable consumer. I want it <laughs> now. Anything but now, reasonable. The unnatural ingredients in question included corn syrup and partially hydrogenated soybean oil. Soybeans right. are natural. What's more natural than that? Science and the public interest conceded that these ingredients aren't harmful per se, but they aren't natural. And noted that much of what's in ice cream, like the cream, for instance, the fat, is not healthy. It actually sounds like one of their aims was to call attention to the fact that all natural doesn't mean healthy. So what? It's fat, but we love it. Yeah. And I think the take-home point here is that the FDA doesn't currently define the phrase all natural. This show is all natural. This show is all natural. But I'll bet a lot of us making healthy food recommendations in practice... We didn't know that. And all natural ingredients might sound like a claim you'd have to back up, but companies can actually define all natural however they want. Yeah, how about like rat droppings? They're all natural. Completely you can have natural. Them in your food, bug parts. 
<laughs> things like they're all natural. It's everybody. existent, so it's natural. That's right. right. <laughs> Maybe these ice cream companies should revise their labels as something like Ready Matt, not completely unnatural. That's pretty good. Sounds like the government would do that. But c- come on, Matt, it's ice cream we're talking about here. Natural or not, what do people expect to get out of it besides sugar and fat and that warm, fuzzy feeling that when the warm, chocolate chips feeling. melt in your mouth? Well, if you down a carton per Hot week, fudge. <laughs> down a carton per week, and I guarantee you'll have yourself some new all natural love handles and probably some totally organic regret. <laughs> I can promise you that. Absolutely. We all do. All right, why don't we move on to today's interview? Our guest is Dr. Judith Karp, chair of the Oncology Care Live Conference, which goes on September 29th, that's today through the 30th. She's a professor of oncology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine's Sidney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center and an authority on the molecular mechanisms of leukemias and lymphomas. Dr. Karp serves as the director of the leukemia program within the Division of Hematologic Malignancies and is co-principal investigator of the NCI Cooperative Agreement Grant for Early Drug Development. If you have any questions or comments for Dr. Karp to address about the Oncology Care Live virtual conference, you can live chat your thoughts from the ReachMD booth, and we'll address them here on the air. And be sure to check out OncologyCareLive.com to register for this event. So with that... Dr. Carp, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Thank you very much for inviting me. We're only virtually here. These are avatars speaking to you. Ah, are you blue? Uh, n- <laughs> We're working on it. I, I, oh, good. That's like a song, you know. Now, listen, seriously, I think this is a great idea, a virtual conference. You don't have to travel. You can go to your computer and, yeah. you know, drink Pepsi while you do it or whatever you want to do. Right. Eat Ben and Jerry's. But how's that working out? Tell us, is it different for you, like being at home, sitting at a computer, rather than standing in front of an audience where you get that human-to-human contact? On the one hand, I think it's different, but on the other hand, I think it's like watching a football game on a big screen TV. Mm. Uh, and in some ways, I think it's better because you you don't have that huge crowd of people. It's it's just you and the speaker, and I think it's a much more intimate um, and potentially interactive uh, environment. And you can have a much more comfortable chair to sit on, too. Precisely. Absolutely. Better replays. Ben and Jerry. <laughs> That's and, right. Uh, yeah. Better replays and you're not freezing. Yeah, I definitely understand that mentality. That's right. <laughs> so how did this begin? How did you become involved in this Oncology Care Live conference? Because it's just so fascinating. It's so different and unique. Well, it certainly was not my idea. Uh, the folks from Platform Q came to... Um, the uh, the head of our uh, CME uh, programs, Dr. Victor Merrow, who's a very creative guy. Uh, for Victor, there is no box. Uh, and uh, he has just fabulous ideas. And the folks from Platform Q came with this absolutely brilliant idea and said, we want to do this. And they did it first in cardiology. And then they said, well, let's tackle something else. And so that's how I got involved. Why don't we do an Avenue Q with puppets? That would be nice. I think that would be even better. Avenue Q. <laughs> Avenue Q. What a cute show that was. All right. <laughs> What's the overall theme of the conference this year? Well, I'm not sure that there really is a centralized theme, although I think what we could say is that it's defining some of those critical targets. I- I'm not a fan of the uh, moniker personalized medicine. I think it promises way too much. But if you can define some of the critical characteristics about somebody's tumor, then you can exploit that. And I think that's the message of most of the talks that we're hearing about. You know, you know if, 
if your epidermal growth factor receptor is mutated in thus and such a way, or if you have a mutation of BRAF, uh, or you've got microsatellite instability or something like that, how can you, or, or you have human papillomavirus infection as a, as a cause of your head and neck cancer, for instance, um, if you can define that and understand it in a way that you can then make drugs, to target those things, and those drugs are being made. That's what I think is so exciting now. Um, and how do you exploit these things, not just when the patient presents with their tumor, but also what do you do for an encore? In our field of leukemia, we induce complete remissions in a sizable proportion of patients, but that doesn't mean cure. It's not enough. So how do you get to that minimal residual disease, what some people are calling stem cells or what have you? The other thing that I think is part of this conference is looking at the microenvironment. You know, it's not just the tumor cell. It's where it lives and who its neighbors are. And the process of blood vessel growth and, and growth factors that make cells survive. Uh, how do we target those? So I think that really is kind of a central thing. Okay, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on Reach MDXM 160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and we're talking to Dr. Judith Karp, an authority on the molecular mechanisms of leukemia and lymphoma and chair of the Oncology Care Live Virtual Conference going on today, September 29th through the 30th. You can live chat your comments and questions if you're at the conference or call us on the phone at 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. So Dr. Karp, were these themes that you just told us about, I mean, they sound like a part and parcel of the trend in which oncology is moving. Yeah. Did the conference emerge out of wanting to just uh, update on some of these trends, or did you have a defined goal for setting this conference up in terms of what you wanted to hit? It's a great question. No, I think this was serendipitous in a sense. Uh, you know, what, what we did was uh, went out to... Um, Dr. Luis Diaz, uh, who is a, an absolutely brilliant molecular geneticist and, and clinician who's devoting himself to gastrointestinal cancers. I keep telling him leukemia, leukemia, but he hasn't heard me yet. Anyway. Um, uh, Buy him some Ben and Jerry's and he'll come along. We'll get him uh, on the that's line. That's it. Yeah. It's Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, he, uh, he and I and, and Victor um, went to our... Our colleagues who are here at Hopkins, leaders in, in, in their particular areas, and gave them free reign and said, you know, um, what is an important thing to be discussing right now? Something we tied it to the ASCO meetings that, that occurred in June. But, you know, what, what were some of the key hot issues, perhaps controversies that are, you know, unresolved? And each of them came up with people from elsewhere, okay, uh, other institutions, their colleagues on the outside, uh, and that's how this developed. Um, you know, we're at, for this first run, we're, we're really looking at lung, head and neck, prostate, colorectal, melanoma, and breast. And hopefully later on, we will have one that's devoted to ovarian carcinoma, renal cancer, renal and bladder, uh, pancreas, uh, and perhaps other GI malignancies, and neuro-oncology. I found that really interesting because 
you're one of the directors of this event, and we see f- at least five major categories here, but I didn't see in particular leukemias or lymphomas, and I imagine you have right. so much you want to say about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, listen, the only thing I know is leukemia, but we're, we're going to wait until after the ASH meeting mm. and do something similar here for uh, hematologic malignancies, leukemias, lymphomas, um, uh, myeloma, bone marrow transplantation, and, um, you know, have something that, that will emanate from Hopkins but will be a national or international group of, of colleagues uh, and have a, a web-based um, interactive uh, forum like this one. Do you have any idea how many people are participating at the moment? Or? Not a clue. That's like our radio show. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of people are probably listening. <laughs> well, you'll have a pretty good pickup rate from us, I guarantee you that. Marvelous, marvelous, and vice versa. <laughs> but that is interesting. I mean, you obviously had a good beta test, if you want to call it that, with the cardiology version. Yes. And yes. so that's clearly led to a, a lot of enthusiasm to mm-hmm. give it a shot. And you're saving on all sorts of conference setup costs and everything like that. So yeah. it sounds like a really great idea. And I'm surprised it hasn't been beta tested all over the place uh, more often. So I definitely tip my hat off to you on that one. Well, don't tip your hat to me. Tip the hat to Platform Q and Victor. <laughs> well, you're the one we're talking to, so we we'll oh, okay. tip Okay, well, to I'll you. pass it along then. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. So why don't we get into the actual conference, some of the categories, and we might as well start with breast cancer. That was the very first listed on the conference. What are you guys going to be moving in on? What are the main topics going to be? You know, the what do you do for early-stage breast cancer? What is the approach? How do you, you know, there are lots of different ways to, um, uh, there are lots of different things that can be done. But what, what is the best approach here? And I think that Deb Armstrong has put together a, a terrific group of people who are going to speak to that. Um, and I'm sure they won't all agree. If they do, it'll be terribly boring. But, but I'm sure that Deb has uh, made it so that it won't be boring. Um, but she's, you know, including the surgical approaches and the molecular profiling, when should you use neoadjuvant chemotherapy? I mean, I think these are burning issues that no one has a really solid answer to. Everybody's got an answer. But in terms of a standard of care, I think that that remains yet to be clearly defined. How about kidney and prostate cancers? Well, we're going to, kidney, kidney is going to be at another time. But prostate cancer, um, now prostate cancer, I think, is a disease for which um, lots of different approaches are really coming to fruition. And there are a lot of new agents. And I think one of the key issues uh, is how do you get a handle on all of the new agents that are out there? What are they for? How, how best will they be implemented? And I think, the, to me, the answer there is clinical trials. I see that you have a lot of dedicated topic material devoted to colorectal cancer. Yes. Uh, that track. So I found that interesting. Yes. Um, and, of course, you know, the, 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 uh, the genetic section with uh, Bert Vogelstein and Luis Diaz, uh, I, I think is, you know, clearly that's going to be a, a spectacular a spectacular discussion. Uh, and how do you use all of these things to predict? And can you prognosticate who needs more therapy of what type? 
and who doesn't? That is getting closer to, I know you hate the term personal medicine. No, no, but, but, but that is, right, that's right. right. I mean, Dr. Um, Tapar from Belgium is really going to be focusing on that. There are all these molecular markers. What do they mean? And how do you use them? And can you prognosticate what you should do treatment-wise? Okay, being a dermatologist, give me a heads up about what you're discussing in melanoma. Ah, there is a, there is a, um, um, uh, a new agent in melanoma um, that's pre- presumptively, I hear it's all the rage, uh, but um, Dr. Scharfman and Dr. Lang are going to try to address the controversy regarding sentinel node biopsies. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, um, you know, some of the um, data on the new, it's a new monoclonal antibody. I think its name is Ipilimuma, Ipilim, whatever. I can't pronounce them either. You don't well, feel you know, bad. That's, you know, that's, that's why problem. I went into Ipil- leukemia. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Even the oncologist can't get the names. I mean, I no, understand. This forbid. is really tough. God forbid. And, and you know, I think they're actually... For their session, what I think they're doing is picking a number of different topics. Uh, controversies, you know, related to sentinel node biopsy, um, the new monoclonal antibody, why that might be better than, than IL-2 and where, you know, where IL-2 uh, is useful and not. It's mostly not. Um, and then some of the new uh, molecular markers, for instance, um, the mutations in BRAF. And there's a drug out there called serafinib. And uh, um, it is targeted to a number of different molecules, one of which is BRAF. So how do you use this in melanoma? And I, So I think that's what they're going to be discussing. I think that's we, we just want to know if they're 100% natural. That's all we care about. Oh, but of course they're 100% But of course natural. they are, Dr. Right. Of course. <laughs> well, well, we think this is a terrific idea. We're glad you were able to speak with us, and we hope you get lots of participation, and maybe we can talk after the conference, and you can let us know what it was like. Fabulous. Well, actually, I am leaving town uh, Saturday morning um, to to run away to Europe with my husband. And we'll go. We'll, that's okay, because our we'll avatars join, will come and meet that's you. That's right. We'll join okay, you there. We're going to Bucharest first. Okay. okay. Our and avatars then we're going to be in Bulgaria where you have to watch out for umbrella tips. So I just, I just give you that warning. But, All right. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. Our, our guest today has been Dr. Judith Karp, an authority on leukemia and umbrella tips and lymphoma from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and chair of the Oncology Care Live Conference. Dr. Karp, thank you for joining us today on Second Opinion Live here on ReachMD. Watch out for those Bulgarian umbrella tips. Absolutely. They're, they are not natural. <laughs> They're not natural. And thank you, guys. I really, I thoroughly enjoyed talking with Thanks. you. And um, this is a great adventure. Thank you. Yeah, this show is, yes. All right. Why don't we go now to the ReachMD Forum? And today's topic carries on the themes of women's health and oncology, just to be consistent. We're going to return to the question of mammogram screening for breast cancer. And everybody knows this issue has not been resolved yet, obviously. But new research is putting it back in the limelight, so let's refresh our memories if here. If you wear a safety bra, you don't need to do any of this. Absolutely. I'm good. sure we all remember back in November of 2009, the U.S. government's Preventive Service Task Force issued new recommendations that countered the longstanding guidelines that women over 40 should get yearly mammograms. 
And this task force was made up of mostly primary care physicians, and their recommendation was that women should not start annual mammograms at 40, but instead should wait until age 50, unless they have a family history or other predisposition to breast cancer. They agreed that mammogram screening reduces breast cancer rates by 15%, but that mammograms also find very small tumors that would not pose a problem in a woman's lifetime and lead to both false positives and unnecessary biopsies. Their stats back it up. Per 1,000 women screened at 40, 0.7 deaths were prevented, but 470 additional women got false positives and 33 more received unneeded biopsies, Matt. Yeah, and we should also remember that the timing and context of the decision was really important. So the recommendation came out just weeks before the passing of health care reform, and it just got hammered by the media as rationing to save costs, which was not in keeping with the patient's health in mind. So around that time, ReachMD focused in on the Radiological Society of North America's 2009 conference. We're right up there on the Right moment. up there on the front lines. And Dr. Wendy Berg from Johns Hopkins, again, Johns Hopkins, tip off to my alma mater, commented on the shortcomings of a pivotal study that led to the Preventative Services Task Force guidelines. Let's roll it to Tony. It's important to keep in mind that the data that was recently evaluated by the United States Preventive Services Task Force looked only at, of course, the older studies, which were done only with film. So that upfront is going to reduce the sensitivity, the ability to detect cancers in the younger, denser breasts. It's interesting, and this is a, a bit of a sideline here, but with the, the only new data that the task force had to look at compared to 2002, was the study that was done in Britain where they looked at women, enrolled them from age 39 to 48, we invited them to have a mammogram every year. The first time they did the mammogram was with the regular two views, like we always do in this country. The, each subsequent screen, though, they only did a single view. And we know that that cuts down on the number of cancers that they can see by about 20%. You just don't see every cancer in just one of the two mammographic images. So up front, they were stacking the deck that they might not see all the breast cancers. And even with this, they had almost a significant benefit from the screening mammography in these younger women. So to say that that study you know, is incontrovertible evidence against mammography is really ludicrous. And even talking to the director of that study, she freely admits that that's not fair to do that. All right, let's talk now about a new study published in the September 23rd issue of the New England Journal of Medicine and conducted by researchers in Norway in collaboration with Harvard University and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Death rates from breast cancer were compared in two groups from 1996 to 2005. One group lived in areas of Norway where screening was offered to women ages 50 to 69. Another group lived in parts of the country without screening. Two additional groups of women were also set up from the 10 years before screening started anywhere in the country, wherever there was hearing, just for comparison. And here were the results. Among women in the screening group, breast cancer mortality rate declined by 7.2 deaths per 100,000 women compared with women in the decade before the screening program started. But in the non-screening group, the mortality rate still fell by 4.8 deaths per 100,000 people compared with the previous decade. So that means that mammography reduced mortality by only 2.4 deaths per 100,000 people. And an accompanying editorial broke that down to around 2,500 women screened over 10 years to save one life from breast cancer. Well, the argument they're making, Matt, isn't against having mammograms, but the question is whether or not they actually save lives to the extent that we believe. Mm -hmm. Or if it's not better, awareness and improved treatments that are doing the bulk of the work these days. And that may be it. Yeah, but it's still an ethical question. I mean, is the reduction in breast cancer mortality, however small, worth the cost of screening programs? 
Well, you know, this is a topic we've handled before on the show. It keeps coming up, and it's a very emotional topic because you start telling women, well, mammograms aren't really going to help you, and a lot of them say, I don't care. I want it. I want to do anything I can. Cancer is very scary, and we need to be aware of that. This is a topic that's going to keep being hammered over and over again in not just in the, the media like our show and, and other shows, but in the public, especially with healthcare reforming. And as we talk about money. Yeah. And, you know, we just listened to Wendy, Dr. Wendy Berg talking from last year's RSNA conference. And she talked about a very particular bias that went into how they selected their mammograms, how they did their mammograms and performed them and used that as their criteria, which she said was fundamentally flawed. I have to look at these results without knowing much more about their design and wonder, was there a similar flaw in their design that caused them not to see the kind of discrepancy between those who got mammograms and those who did not and their outcomes? And you have to remember that one number that we read here. You tell the public that mammography reduced mortality by only 2.4 deaths per 100,000 people. What people are going to say is, yeah, what if that's your wife? What if she's one of the 2.4? Is it worth the cost? And of course, when you get the cost of millions and millions and millions of dollars of tests, people don't care if it's not coming out of their pocket. If it's you or your family, that's what they're going to say. That's what the public will say on this argument. You know, we'll have statisticians and doctors arguing the other side and arguing the cost. Whatever happens, it's going to come down to one side really just like throwing up their hands and saying, okay. I quit because I can't argue anymore. I mean, it's ethical. It's highly politically charged issue. And really, we just have to put the question back out there. Is the reduction in breast cancer mortality, however small it is, however small they think it is, and this study was based on 50,000 people out in Norway, is it worth the cost of the screening programs? You know, that's the question that has to be addressed. I mean, I'd love for our audience, our listeners, to post on Facebook, to tweet us, let us know what they think about that, because that's a fascinating question. I still think it's the herring. (laughs) It's the herring in Norway. The herring in Norway. And with that, that is the end of another installment of Second Opinion Live. Whether you joined us from your car or your office, or if you had a seat in our virtual conference booth, we're glad to have you with us today. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thanks to Matt, Tony, Paula, and a shout-out to Derek back in the hospital. You can listen to all the programs in our series archive on our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Don't forget to look for us on Twitter or Facebook. Thank you for listening. Keep your radio dialed in to ReachMD 160. Have some Ben It's all natural, like we are. <laughs>